It's good to be with you. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Psalm 121. Psalm 121, if you're using this pew Bible in front of you, is on page 516. Page 516. I'm going to tell you two things before I read it. One is, um, one of the things we do in a church, in, in our church, is uh, in a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. And we do that because we believe that this really is God's inspired word. This is breathed out by God. And so when we hear what's read here, we're actually hearing what God wants us to hear. It's more important than anything I'll say. So we stand for God's word in a moment. The other thing is, when I'm in the Old Testament and I see L-O-R-D in all caps. Sometimes you might notice that they do that, and you say, why do they do that? Well, it's actually referencing the divine name of God, Yahweh. In the Hebrew, that's the word there. So when I read Lord in all caps, you'll hear me say Yahweh, and uh, that's why I do it. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we do come before you. Understanding our need for you, our need to hear from you. We are weak and we're frail and we are thick-headed at times. Our flesh is strong. We need you. We need your spirit. So I pray as we look to your word, we'd understand what you have said. We'd hear your voice and that our ears would be open, our eyes would be open to hear and to see. So we'd be changed by what you have to say to us today. So we submit ourselves collectively to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2 Kings 8, there's this interesting story, one of the most interesting stories in the Bible, I think. And it's, uh, what, what's going on is uh, the king of Syria has it out for Israel, and he wants to uh, rout Israel. Much bigger, more powerful army. And so they're, they're, moving, they're moving deliberately so as to be able to sneak up on Israel and capture Israel destroy them. But it seems that there's a mole in the camp because every time the king says, all right, we're going to camp here on our attempt to sneak up on Israel, well, Israel gets wind of it before they're even there and moves to another place. So the king of Syria is frustrated in his attempts to capture Israel. And so he calls his advisors together and he says, something's going on. Who is it? We need to find out. And his advisors say, Actually, what's going on is God is revealing to Israel's prophet, Elisha, where your location is going to be, and Elisha is letting people know. 
king of Syria is no dummy. So he says, all right, then we got to get Elisha if we're going to be able to capture, uh, capture Israel. So he finds out where Elisha's staying, Elisha and his servants, and the army goes quickly and surrounds the town that night. The next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, and he looks out, and the entire city is surrounded by the Syrian army. And he's fearful. He's terrified. What are we going to do? He talks to Elisha. And Elisha is calm and cool. There's no fear, no trembling. Despite this situation, a whole army there to get you. And then Elisha does this. He bows his head and he prays for the servant. And he says, O Yahweh, please open his eyes that he may see. And then all of a sudden, the servant looks at the mountains around. And the Bible says this, Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. Well, I won't tell you how the story ends, but God, you'll have to look there yourself, 2 Kings 8, all right? But, but, but the amazing thing here, the, the picture I love is the servant who is first looking at this army that he can see and then sees Elisha not fearful. And why? Because then the servant is able to see actually there's a heavenly host around him. Elisha was garrisoned by the heavenly host. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine to be able to look out and see the heavenly host surrounding you? Now, for some of us, it's a little far-fetched. Maybe it sounds like uh, something from a myth. It certainly is too good to be true, right? But, But just suspend that for a moment and imagine what it would be like You're facing some difficult situation, situation that normally our human response would be to be a little trepidatious, a little concerned, and then God opens your eyes to see all around you the heavenly host, an army there for you. It certainly change how you were feeling about that situation. It would change how you would act. It would change your demeanor. It would even probably change your posture, right? Oh, to be Elijah. Oh, to be able to experience that. Well, Psalm 121 does us one better than that. And so I want to dig into it in greater detail this morning. The psalm starts, I lift up my eyes to the hills, or as some translations say, to the mountains. Lifting up your eyes. You know, mountains have always captured my imagination, my heart. I remember being in grade eight and driving through the Appalachian Mountains, these kind of old, soft mountains with rolling hills and beautiful forests and just being amazed and gripped by the beauty. 
I remember, I think it was just a year later, I was in Romania. And for a week, we were running a camp in the mountains of Romania. And these mountains are the old European mountains. So they're grassy but rocky at the same time. They're beautiful. In fact, I still remember that memory of the, those mountains is, is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my mind. And I remember approaching the great Rocky Mountains, these towering, rocky uh, peaks that you look up on. You're amazed. And you drive back down and you realize that was just a small mountain, the bigger ones in front of you. When you look up at the mountains, they capture your heart. They, they, they make you realize how small you are. And you stand in awe at their grandeur. It's no wonder that the ancient people associated their gods with these mountains. In fact, they would, they would build their altars on the top of these mountains. Some of them believed that their gods actually dwelled in the mountains. Some believed that the mountains predated their gods. This great mountain. And so here, the writer of this psalm has us sitting, staring up at the hills, staring up at the mountains, and the question on our tongue that is placed on our tongue is from where does my help come? That is a crucial question, isn't it? You can imagine why you would ask that when you're sitting there surrounding by all these mountains, feeling your own smallness, maybe even in the, in the ancient mind, thinking of all the different pagan gods that these different mountains could represent or that call to your mind. And you're thinking, here am I small, and here am I in these towering mountains, and I am wondering... Where does my help come from? Where does our help come from? That is a question we need to think about this morning. When the hard times come, when difficult times come, where do you turn for help? What are you trusting in as your help, your aid in this life? Is it my own cleverness, my own ingenuity, my own strength? Maybe it's a web of relationships I have, good friends that I've had for a long time, or my spouse, or my extended family, my parents and my siblings. Or maybe it's my money. What is it? From where comes my help. Well, in verse 2, we get the answer. It says, My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. That is the affirmation here. A strong, clear affirmation where I look at all these different possibilities of the different places I could be drawing my help from, when I realize I need help, and I'm thinking, where does my help come? I say this, my help comes from Yahweh, the one who made the mountains that prompted the question in the first place. 
And this affirmation in verse 2 is the turning point for the whole psalm. Did you notice as I read it, the first two verses are I, my, but then verses 3 through 8 are he, you. Verse 2 is the last word spoken by the voice in this psalm, like the, you know, the person who is the I in this psalm. Verse 2 is his last thing said. He says, my help comes from Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth, and we don't hear from him again the rest of the psalm. From that point on, there is another voice speaking to him. Now we speculate, maybe it's God speaking to him. Maybe it's a group of friends speaking to him. Maybe he's standing in the congregation and he says these words and in response, they speak to him. But what we can see here is this affirmation where he says, okay, you want to know where I am placing my alliance, the one I am entrusting myself to, the one I am looking to for help, it is Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth. From that affirmation follows everything said in verses 3 through 8. Those words are spoken because of the affirmation in verse 2. So, of course, we need to consider, can we affirm this? Is this what we would say? Not just because we're in a church building and so we're supposed to say it. Not because it's what we've been taught to say, but what's really true in our hearts as an affirmation of our soul. My help comes from Yahweh. For those who take Yahweh as their helper, for those who entrust themselves into the care of Yahweh, what can they expect? And that's what verses 3 through 8 tell us. And the answer is very clear. What they can expect is for Yahweh to be their keeper. Yahweh himself will keep them. That word keep in these six verses is repeated six times. Look with me. Starting in verse 3. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4. He who keeps Israel Verse 5, Yahweh is your keeper. Verse 7, Yahweh will keep you from all evil, and then he will keep your life. Verse 8, Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in. The point is very clear. That word keep is this really uh, full-orbed word in Hebrew. These are some of the things that it can mean. It can mean uh, to keep. It can mean to watch, to guard, to garrison, to preserve, to tend, to support, to protect, to aid. So what we're being told when it says Yahweh will keep you, will keep you, will keep you, will keep you, will keep you. That Yahweh is our guardian. He's our protector. He is our advocate. So we're standing in this valley between these mountains and we shout out, My help comes from Yahweh! And echoing back, 
He will keep you. He will keep you. He will keep you. He will keep you. That is the profound truth of verses 3 through 8. Elisha was garrisoned by the hosts of heaven. Elijah has nothing on us because we are garrisoned by God himself. And it's interesting when it says you here in verses 3 through 8, so often in the Bible the you is plural. It's talking about all of you, right? But here the you is singular. These things, he is, he is my keeper. Mine. And anyone who affirms my help comes from the Lord. He is my keeper. Well, and even a lot of the Psalms, it, they make more sense when you realize they're written about the king. And you, can, and you can look in the heading or you can look in the text and see these are actually written about the king of Israel. But nothing like that in this Psalm. This is a Psalm for anyone. It says a Psalm of Ascents. That's they're ascending to Jerusalem. They're on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It's for any pilgrim, anybody, this psalm is for. Anybody who can affirm this. My shade, my helper, my keeper. So let's look then at what exactly the, the, the imagery that is drawn out in these verses. Let's look more in detail, verses 3 to 8. The first, uh, the first thing it says, the first image used is, he will not let your foot be moved. Now, in Georgetown, we have paved roads. We have sidewalks that go everywhere, right? Everything's handicap accessible. Even if you want to go off into the woods, we have these nice trails. So we don't have to worry about the ground giving way beneath us. Well, you don't. I do. Uh, one of the most embarrassing stories I have of a pastor is when ground gave way beneath me. I was uh, conducting a, a graveside service. Yeah. <laughs> and they have this nicely laid kind of greenish tarp, uh, almost like AstroTurf, kind of laid out around the hole, and it's the job of the pastor. He's supposed to stand at the head of the casket at all times. So I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm just starting the service, and I feel my, something happening under my right foot. Sure enough, the ground is giving way, and by the time I realize it, I am squatted down with my right leg entirely in the hole. Fortunately, I realized it in time that I didn't go all the way in. I know what you're thinking, George Comfort, one foot in the grave, right? <laughs> the joke was made. The two seasoned funeral directors who were there at the funeral both compared notes and said they'd never seen it happen, though they had heard of it happening. So you don't have to worry about your, the ground getting away, but I do. But for me, it's just embarrassment, right? The ground gives way, and I'm embarrassed. But in those days, when you're walking the terrain of the mountainous area that, that the pilgrims would have been journeying, the ground giving way could mean life or death. It's a big deal, let your foot be moved. That's the image, right? So on our, on our 
journey of life. If Yahweh is our keeper, it means the ground never gives way beneath us. Now that doesn't mean to us sometimes it doesn't feel like the ground is giving way. In fact, that's kind of the context of this psalm. There's trouble. There are hard things. We need to know amidst these hard things that even when it feels that way, if you're trusting Yahweh, if you're looking to him for help, your foot will not be moved. And then look what it says. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, the idea of God sleeping might be to our modern minds uh, a kind of ridiculous notion. But the ancients, some of them did believe that gods had to sleep. They were very man-like. So the gods had to sleep. And so this would have been a great encouragement to Israel that God never sleeps. But I think it's a great encouragement to us as well. I want you to look at me for a minute. No matter what you go through, God's watchful, attentive care is on you. So when you receive that diagnosis, when you hear that hard news from a friend, when a loved one breaks your heart, our God does not slumber. He's not sleeping. His eye is on you. His eye is on me. The next image is, it repeats again, Yahweh is your keeper. And then in the second part of verse 6, Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. On a hot July day in Canada, shade is, is a, a welcome break from the heat of the sun, right? At the picnic at the Laidlaws, where do we put all our, all our, our chairs, right? in the shade. But in the hot wilderness of the Middle East, shade can mean the difference between life and death. For God to say, at your right hand, I have shade, is a great expression of God's care. Now let's translate that a little bit to Canada, all right? So sometimes as a dad, I had the kids out in cold weather. This winter it happened, surprisingly. And there's not only, not only is the temperature really cold, but the wind is blowing this awful cold wind. And what do you do as a dad when, when that hot or that cold wind is blowing? What's the first thing you do? You put yourself in the direction of the wind to block your child from that wind, right? When I have a little baby, sometimes I'll take my winter jacket and I'll unzip it and I'll tuck the baby, little mercy, right in here and then zip it back up. I'm providing warmth from her, for her from the bitter cold. That's what you can think of when it says the shade on your right hand. That's kind of the image as, as, as a father just coming along. He's right there on your right side, your right hand. And he's there, able to take you in, block you from that icy wind, hold you close to himself, and give you warmth. 
This was written in the Middle East, not in Canada. And then it says, this interesting phrase, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. What is it talking about? I mean, in what sense does the, the sun strike us? Or, 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 or especially the moon. How does the moon strike us? There's been all sorts of different creative explanations come up. So maybe some have talked about, well, well you're in that hot sun and it strikes you with, with sunstroke, which would have been a real ri risk in the Middle East. And, and then they say, okay, and being moonstruck relates to just kind of being a little crazy. I think our kids this last week with the full moon and how they slept at night were a little moonstruck. But I'm not sure that's what's going on. I think what's going on here is something that the Hebrew mind loved to do, which was, th there was a way of talking about the totality of things. A and we, we use the same kind of uh, approach, though not as commonly as, as the Hebrew mind did. We'll say something like, from the beginning to the end, from the head to the toe, or from A to Z, or I say A to Z, you say A to Z, right? But we're not really focused on A and Z. We're focused on, this means everything, right? And so what's, what's being talked about here is that from, from sunlight to moonlight, nothing can strike you. The dangers of the day, the dangers of the night, amidst all of them, Yahweh is garrisoning us. Sure. Sure, Syria's armies might be there threatening in the moonlight the sunlight but none of that's going to affect you because you're garrisoned by God Almighty if you think about these things he's our shade he keeps us from being struck in the day or the night what, what does that mean kind of tangibly okay, they're, they're this beautiful poetic imagery, kind of gripping, but, but what does that mean when I'm going through the hard times? How is he my shade? How is he the one who is protecting me? What does that mean? Say, when you're going through those times and you say, Yahweh is my helper, you are entrusting yourself to his care. I even think of the imagery of like, you know, these big backpacks that you have to sometimes carry when you're on a long hike or when you're going on some sort of expedition and they're heavy and they're burdensome and you're growing weary. Take off that burden and give it to your heavenly father to carry. And when you do it, that shade comes over your soul. There's something inside you that changes, that you experience his care and his joy in the midst of trials. There, there is shade upon your soul. But I'd say there is also God in those times when we cry out to him and we're entrusting ourselves to him, consciously saying, God, I can't handle this. I'm looking to you. I'm coming to you as the one who is my guardian and I'm giving these things to you. I'm taking off this great weight and I'm giving it to you, 
that God actually comes and gives tangible relief to us. It doesn't mean that our situations change the next day and everything's perfect, but God comes and does tangible things to remind you of your, his care for you, that he is garrisoning you, that he is guarding you. The next phrase in verse 7 says, Yahweh will keep you from all evil. Now, keep you from all evil doesn't mean that you never see anything bad, nothing bad ever, you know, crosses your mind, nothing bad could ever happen. It means that while we walk through these dangers, all, while we walk through this landmine-filled field, God is guarding us. I like how Derek Kidner explained this. He said, to be kept from all evil does not imply a cushion life, but a well-armed one. It's the life which expects the dark valley, but can face it. Isn't that neat? And then guard your life. Again, it doesn't mean you'll never die. It means it's a promise that our very lives are in his care. I love how this psalm ends. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. There's that word keep again, the theme of the psalm, right? The theme of verses 3 through 8 at least. He will keep us. And then look, there's, again, there's one of these Hebrew totality statements, right? You're going out and you're coming in. Think of the different places you go out and come in from. Your home, what you're doing this day, this building, even life itself, going out into life, coming back. Totality, he's keeping you. And then it says, from this time, now, right now, as we speak, right? This time, right now he's keeping you. Forth and forever. I can't help but read this psalm from this side of the cross. All, all these things are, are just amazing truths about God's tender care for me, how much he loves me, and how if I, if I say, Yahweh, you are my helper, that he, he is keeping me. But I also, I know what my flesh is like. And there's probably others in this room who go, if, if God really knew what I was like, these things wouldn't be true. And I'm sure he does. That's nice for you great Christians at Maple Avenue, the holy people of Maple Avenue, the great saints of Maple Avenue, but I'm here and I'm not the type of person that God could really embrace like that. But that, that's the reality for every single one of us. Why can he be one who takes us into his jacket and zips it up and keeps us warm? Why is he when he knows the filth that's within us? It's because, as the rest of the Bible explains, that Jesus, his son, came and took the filth that was in us upon himself and bore the full weight of God's wrath upon him. 
so that then his righteousness could be granted to us and God the Father can look at us as righteous sons of God. Maybe another way to, just in light of the cross, to think about this psalm is my help comes from Jesus who conquered sin and death for me. And Jesus, by his spirit, which he's able to send forth into our hearts because of what he did in his death and resurrection, Jesus pours out his spirit and his spirit will keep me and guard me from this time forth and forever. I want to just conclude by addressing just kind of two ways of thinking that could be in this room um, that, that we respond to this, ways we could respond in this psalm. One is for those in this room who for whatever reason, maybe it's some hard circumstances going on in your life or whatever reason, but you're, you're well aware of the dangers around you. You're well aware of your weak knees and, and your drooping spirit. I, uh, I want to read something to you. Um, some of you may know that our oldest son, Charlie, is named after uh, a not super well-known British pastor, though he was well-known for a time, named Charles Simeon. And he wrote this, I think, to you and to me in light of this psalm. Listen to his words. You should never forget what an almighty friend you have. How many times in the psalm are you reminded that Yahweh, even the Lord, or even almighty God, is your helper and deliverer? Were he less powerful or less vigilant or less worthy of credit, you might well fear. But what ground can he have for fear who has God himself for his refuge? Oh, learn to say with David, the Lord is my strength and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I ask not from whence your dangers or your fears arise. For if they were a thousand times greater and better founded than they are, this one answer were, for, were, were sufficient to remove them all. If God be for us, who can be against us? Only rely on God and you are safe. See how tenderly he chides your unbelieving fears. If under any circumstances you are tempted to indulge in unbelieving fear, check yourselves instantly as David did and say with him, why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Good word. The other group I want to address are those who are in this room and have little or no fear. I talk about the dangers, I talk about weariness, and you're kind of like, I'm sure there's people in this room that need to hear that, that's good. But I don't feel it. I have another word from Charles Simeon for you. 
to those who have no fears. Whence proceeds this? That means, from where does this proceed? I know you knew that. If from confidence in the power and veracity of God, it is well. You are then entitled, entitled to cast off all fear. For they who fear him have nothing else to fear. Listen. But if your want of fear arises, as it too generally does, from an ignorance of your danger or a confidence in yourselves, you have no reason for self-congratulation. Since the greater your fancied security is, the more imminent and awful is your danger. Psalm 121 is this beautiful cry out in the mountains. My help, and I need it, my help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. And we echo back, I will keep you, or he will keep you, 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 he will keep you. 